Major League Baseball has a marketing problem it can't seem to solve, even though the answer is obvious. Who, in 2021, should be the public face of the game? I think Tim Anderson should be the face of baseball. I really do. I think he's everything right about the game. He's all energy. The guy plays his tail off. He he is awesome. And for him to step up in that moment uh, to, to represent the White Sox and to walk it off like that, uh, on that kind of a stage, I mean, those are little things that happen along the way that turn into bigger things. And I just, I think baseball's got to latch onto him even more. I, I, I just think he's, he's everything that this game should be celebrating. That was Fox Sports announcer Joe Buck with Chicago 670 The Score afternoon host Danny Parkins and Matt Spiegel the day after the Field of Dreams game, which saw the Chicago White Sox beat the New York Yankees 9-8 to in dramatic fashion. A Tim Anderson walk-off home run that he showed out in impressive fashion. Unfortunately, and for reasons baked into the sports history, more baseball fans have heard of the White Fox sports announcer than the black White Sox star shortstop. The man whose two-run walk-off homer in the bottom of the ninth capped the Hollywood ending that Major League Baseball could only have dreamed of, but most definitely did not deserve. There was so much for baseball to celebrate, including the fact the Field of Dreams game garnered an average of 5.9 million viewers, the most for a regular season game since October 1st, 2005, 16 years ago. But if Major League Baseball didn't actively alienate a largely untapped, dare I say dismissed and ignored demographic, those viewer numbers could have been so much more. Let's set the scene. Fade in on a cornfield in Dyersville, Iowa, where for years Field of Dreams fans have visited to reenact the movie's final scene, heartstrings tugging as fathers play catch with their sons or daughters. It's 6 p.m. on a mid-August evening, warm, sunny, and not a cloud in the sky, and as the game enters the middle innings, Fox Sports viewers will be blessed with the visual of a stunning sunset against an endless horizon. By the end of the game, there will have been four lead changes. Eight home runs will be hit, balls that won't be found until all that corn is harvested. Only one of those eight was hit by a white player. The other seven came from a spectrum of color and geography spanning black, brown, and biracial, Puerto Rican, Mexican, Cuban, and Dominican. Two of them, by Yankee sluggers Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton, came off an Australian closer, Liam Hendricks, as New York overcame a three-run deficit to take an 8-7 lead heading into the bottom of the ninth. And then, Tim Anderson, who'd made this promise during pregame warm-ups with his teammates. I'm trying to put one in the corn, baby, first pitch. Stepped to the plate as the potential winning run with one out and a man on first. He swung at the first pitch he saw and crushed it. On his follow-through, Anderson let the bat fall from his left hand as he stood unmoving at home plate. Watching the ball sail over the right field fence into the eastern Iowa night. It wasn't until he knew it was out that he started skipping toward first base, gesturing toward his teammates as if to say, no doubt about it. Fireworks exploded from behind the center field fence as Anderson celebrated, playing the moment for everything it was worth, hopping his way around the bases before leaping into a pile of waiting teammates standing at home plate to give the White Sox a 9-8 victory in the Field of Dreams game its Hollywood ending. The screaming crowd drowning out Joe Buck's call of the game winner. However, there was just one problem. If you took your eyes off home plate 
as the moment unfolded, or really at just about any point prior, that did not involve a player on either team. The tableau was lily white as far as the eye could see. On this episode of Wrecking the Toy Department, where we won't just stick to sports because we don't have the privilege of doing so, we're going to take a look at why Major League Baseball, purposefully or otherwise, is failing to capitalize when it comes to the chance to greatly expand its fan and player demographics. Over the past several years, we've seen Major League Baseball yo-yo wildly between trying to diversify its national appeal and courting its base. A fan base that, according to Morning Consult, is 60% white compared to just 16% black. This is the widest spread in the big three American sports leagues, MLB, the NBA, and NFL. In terms of fans' political affiliation, MLB has the highest percentage among the big three sports of fans who self-identify as Republicans. And while its fans are still more likely to self-identify as Democrats than Republicans, it has the smallest percentage spread of the big three. According to Statista.com, its most avid fans, by a significant spread, are more likely to be older than 35 than younger. Starting to notice pattern? Three years ago, it appeared Major League Baseball had turned a corner. After a series of altercations, usually involving a white player retaliating against a player of color who didn't play the right way, or who otherwise disrespected the game by not following its unwritten rules, Major League Baseball happened upon what looked at the time to be a stroke of genius. It would showcase the game's multiculturalism by promoting some of its youngest stars, Mookie Betts, Giancarlo Stanton, Francisco Lindor, Ronald Acuna Jr., Yasiel Puig, and Javier Baez. The ad, titled MLB Postseason, Rewrite the Rules, featured the tagline, Let the Kids Play. They said rules are rules. Don't stop and stare. Toss that bat 30 feet into the air. Don't flip your bat. Respect the jersey. He didn't earn that right. They called him unprofessional. No celebrating. Keep your head down. Flashy. Immature. Showboat. They said it all. You don't have to do that. A little tired of it. Something you do not do in baseball. No more talk. Let the kids play. It's just a new world. But here's the problem. None of these players transcends their sport. Unlike the narrator of this commercial, Ken Griffey Jr. Now there's a true star. We need a man in the White House who knows the difference between a forkball and a screwball. We need a man in the White House who can hit five home runs in a five-game playoff series and who isn't Reggie Jackson. We need a man in the White House who knows an ERA is more than just an amendment. We need a man in the White House with his own candy bar and who isn't Reggie Jackson. We need a man in the White House who will remember to take his spikes off before entering the White House. That man is Ken Griffey Jr. 
He had his own signature line of Nike shoes in the 1990s and starred in national commercials. He was the epitome of cool, a charismatic and electric player who inspired a generation of teen and preteen sports fans to start wearing their baseball caps backwards. He possessed incredible power, athleticism, and the baseball intelligence to make the most of his genetic gifts. People who couldn't tell you what a baseball is know the name Ken Griffey Jr., and in hearing his name can picture exactly what he looks like. There's not a single player in the Let the Kids Play ads that ran in 2018 and 19 who has anything close to that same star power. As a huge fan of the now former Cub, I could probably recognize Javi Baez without benefit of a jersey or name drop, but there's no one else in the campaign, even the ostensible current face of baseball, whom I'd recognize without needing a hint. Just let the kids play. Know who that was? Here, I'll play it again. Anything you want to say? Just let the kids play. That's Mike Trout, the current face of baseball, and I'll bet you have no idea what he looks like. That might even be the first. Sorry, second time you've ever heard his voice. And why is that? He plays for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Eleven years into Trout's historic, probably Hall of Fame career, the only time he's played in the postseason, back in 2014, the Royals swept the Angels in the ALDS. This is the hole Major League Baseball has dug itself into. It's a completely regional sport where none of its biggest stars are household names nationwide. It's so bad that MLB had to have someone say its biggest star's name so viewers would know who he was. Were it not so sad, that moment would be as funny as when Geico lampooned the fact that nobody outside the D.C. metro area knew who Washington linebacker Brian Arakpo was when the company featured him in a 2011 commercial. You said you'd get me on the field. I did get you on the field. You are Brian Arakpo, all-pro linebacker. Surely you could do better than this. Come on, sunshine. It's game time. Squad's waiting. This is embarrassing, Brian. They've got me on the bottom of the pyramid. The NFL and NBA have real stars who transcend their sports. Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, LeBron James, Steph Curry, even women's tennis and soccer, and Serena Williams and Megan Rapino have more players who are celebrities beyond their sport than is America's supposed pastime. Emphasis on past. If you take a quick look at baseball literature, you'll get a clear picture of how backwards-looking the sport is. The horribly outdated stories are all about kids from the country heading into the big city to become stars. Casey at the Bat, 1888. The Natural, 1952. Eight Men Out, 1963. And Shoeless Joe, the book upon which the film Field of Dreams is based, was published in 1982. Entering the 2021 season, just five current major leaguers were born before its publication date. Two of the books I just named, Eight Men Out and Shoeless Joe, are about the 1919 Chicago White Sox, a team that saw eight of its players exiled forever from Major League Baseball for throwing the World Series. Did I mention that in 1919 it had been more than 50 years since a black player last played for a team that would become or was part of Major League Baseball, and it would be another 28 years until Jackie Robinson's 1947 debut? Definitely a story worth celebrating. And yet, 32 years after it was made, which makes it older than all but two White Sox players who actually played in the Field of Dreams game, the film and the location of the rebuilt Field of Dreams in Dyersville, Iowa, appear to still be revered by white baseball fans everywhere, starting with Murray Cook, 
who designed the rebuilt field where the game was played. This morning when the dew sets on the field in the evening or the, the fog comes in, that's the special moments. I'll bet. Those are the special moments in, in the evenings and early mornings when you can come out here and no one's here. You hear nothing, there's nothing mowing out here, but you see this field and the corn, you hear a little breeze, you know, the you. Is this heaven? You know? For me it is. It's, you know, it's still a dream. It's exactly what, you know, the movie is all about, playing catch with your dad. Yeah. The opportunity tonight to walk through that cut in the corner, come out here and just see the expression on the people's face, how magical it was in that. To me, that meant everything in the world. To be here, uh, sun setting, uh, just kind of like at the end of the movie, uh, pretty unbelievable. So beautiful, right? It's, it's gorgeous. Uh, the way the home runs are falling into the corn is surreal, so it worked out really well. I honestly was thinking, you know, could my dad walk through the uh, cornfield and play catch with him again? So, yeah. Those interviews from NBC's Today Show, KCRG in Iowa City, and WGN in Chicago. This is how famed Chicago Sun-Times movie critic Roger Ebert set up the movie on Siskel and Ebert back in 1989. One day, Costner hears a voice out in the field, and it advises him to build a baseball diamond on his farm. Then he sees a vision of the diamond, and the voice hints that if he builds it, Shoeless Joe Jackson of the 1919 Black Sox just might come back from the grave to redeem himself and his reputation by playing on it. If you build it. Ebert argues for the magic of the movie, while his on-screen partner, Chicago Tribune critic Gene Siskel, argues against it, saying that the movie is trying too hard. But neither mentions the scene that appears to resonate with all these fans three-plus decades later, when Dwyer Brown, who plays Shoeless Joe author John Kinsella, the dead father come back to life of Kevin Costner's character, steps out of the cornfield and onto the ball field. Costner sees him and says, hey dad, Want to have a catch? They then play catch while a 1989 era nation of white kids and their fathers weep. And then, after hugging and whispering, I love you, between golf ball sized teardrops, they head out to play catch. It's the idyllic picture of white America and further cements this idea that baseball is not an urban sport. At its core, it is a rural game, not a city game. The literature of baseball is replete with strong kids hitting the cover off the ball, then getting on a train to the big city. The one person I wanted to win over at this event was not Kevin Costner or the people at home or anything like that. It was Tim Anderson. Tim Anderson, Tony, is very openly a guy who did not watch Field of Dreams. He thinks baseball is boring. He is the guy who is the kind of entertainment-driven future of the game who also doesn't love the game. That's Tony Kornheiser and Pablo Torre from ESPN's Pardon the Interruption. A friend once asked me why I think it's more important that black kids don't play baseball than white kids giving up on basketball once they discover they'll never be the next Stephen Curry. Even if the white kids discover they'll never be Stephen Curry, like I quickly learned as a 13-year-old I'd never be Ken Griffey Jr., they'll keep watching Curry. Their interest in basketball won't go away just because they can't play the sport at a higher level. They'll still play with friends and at least try to introduce their kids, nephews, nieces to a sport they loved as a kid. Basketball, through Michael Jordan, Allen Iverson, and now Steph Curry, has always captured my interest, and I still love watching the best play the game. Basketball hasn't lost me, even though I myself haven't picked up a basketball in years. 
Baseball is not necessarily in trouble because a large segment of the youth population would rather play another sport. The sport's in trouble because that group doesn't care about baseball. That group won't play baseball. Given a choice, they won't even watch it. And they certainly won't bother trying to interest the next generation in the game. Yet baseball, intentionally or not, is further alienating a significant portion of the American population. Dan Bernstein of Chicago's 670 The Score spoke with Richard Deitch, media reporter for The Athletic, and fellow Score host Lawrence Holmes about how the telecast was chock full of problematic imagery. The announcers who went all in and, you know, John Smoltz and Joe Book look like uh, 1920s speakeasy owners. You know, Verducci and Rosenthal, the same thing. I was kind of side-eyeing the entire thing, other than the baseball. And then you get there, and you're watching it on the screen, and you're like, man, they really did a wonderful job with the presentation of the game itself. I could have, You could have kept everything else for me. Like, everything else, I'm like, you know, walk out of a cornfield. Like, eh, there's some bad imagery, like, with some of that stuff. Like, Straight Dan, straight up, like there's some bad imagery with that. And there people seem to be leaning into it. And you have walking out of the field. Yes. Speaking of imagery and plot turns to side eye, let's talk about the fact there's just one black character in Field of Dreams. Writer Terrence Mann, who's long disappeared from public sight and is played by James Earl Jones. I knew that there are people that would be upset. How dare I bring up the concept of race and culture? Inside of this, my favorite text that I've gotten so far from from people is that black people were definitely represented because James Earl Jones was the narrator of the movie. Okay, these are conversations that I wish that we could honestly have without there being the reflexive. You can't have that point of view. Everything's totally fine now. Jackie Robinson, 1947. Like, we were in a space. Like, we were romanticizing about a time when black and brown people couldn't play baseball and women couldn't vote. This is the second time in Chicago that two teams have worn jerseys where black players did not wear those jerseys originally. It's James Earl Jones who tells Kevin Costner people will come if he builds a baseball field on his farm, saying, quote, They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. For it's money they have and peace they lack. They'll walk out to the bleachers and sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. They'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines where they sat when they were children and cheered their heroes. And they'll watch the game and it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick, they'll have to brush them away from their faces. This field, this game, it's a part of our past. It reminds us of all that once was good and it could be again, end quote. Whoever wrote those lines back in the 80s must have had ESP because that's exactly what's happened, not just in Dyersville, Iowa, but across the United States, a gross commoditization of our collective memories and nostalgia for better times, whatever that means. 
either blithely glossing over or blurring the difficult problematic parts of our shared history and presenting what's left through the rosiest of rose-colored glasses, as baseball writer Craig Calcaterra told Dan Bernstein. It's like this late 80s weird, everything that the kids of the 60s thought and did was wrong and we must repent for it. And they actually use the word repent. And not only must the hippies from the 60s repent and honor their greatest generation fathers, that is the huge message right here, so too must James Earl Jones' character, who was a 60s radical writer, political person, he too must repent. And he's the one who gives the speech about how great capitalism is and the people will come in at $20 a carload or, I'm sorry, $1,400 thirteen dollars and sixty three cents a ticket to revel in their nostalgia for a while. If that doesn't scream late Reagan, early George Bush administration, nineteen eighties, nineteen early nineties America, I don't know what does, and sorry, it doesn't age well. Kinda like trickle down economics. Why is this movie the one we use to celebrate what's great about baseball? It glorifies a team that conspired with known gamblers to throw a World Series. The scandal led to the hiring of MLB's first commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, whose first act was to hand down lifetime bans to eight members of the team. His legacy, however, as official MLB historian John Thorne told USA Today last year, includes, quote, documented racism. Speaking to that same newspaper in 2020, Hall of Fame shortstop Barry Largan thought back to seeing Landis's name engraved on his 1995 NL MVP award. Quote, Why is it on there? I was always aware of his name and what it meant to slowing the color line in Major League Baseball, of the racial injustice and inequality that black players had to go through. Unquote. There were no black players during Landis's 25-year tenure. It wasn't until two years after his death that Jackie Robinson arrived in the major leagues. So again, why Field of Dreams? I had trouble with the idolatry of a mediocre movie. I've beat that movie to death over the years, and there are all kinds of ways to poke holes in it. And I understand that a lot of people have an emotional connection to it because, you know, it's their father or, or baseball or whatever. There's a lot tied up in that. And we all have some sort of connection to that. So I don't mean to disparage people who have a connection to the movie, but just on its own terms, if it was a movie that didn't have that emotional pull with everybody else, it, it falls apart, man. It's every angle. It's from the filmmaking angle. It's from the baseball angle, from the writing and the literary angle, all of it. And it, and every, it just started to crumble like a sandcastle. Terrible yeah. movie. Unwatchable. Horrible. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Yes. It's an unwatchable I'm piece so, of trash. I'm so anyone that yeah, d- Burns. If anyone says it's a watchable movie, they're an idiot. It's horrid. It's not a good movie. <laughs> it's a bad movie. A very bad movie. Chalk filled with terrible performances, lazy filmmaking because they didn't. You could have just put Ray Liotta in a backwards uniform and just flipped the camera and you could have hit left handed like Shoeless Joe. Instead, I got a right handed Shoeless Joe, a terribly acted movie everywhere. Also, we could play catch with his dad. You ever played catch with your dad? It's terrible. Progressively worse reviews there from former Washington Post editor Gene McManus on the Tony Kornheiser show, then Craig Calcaterra and baseball analyst and former major leaguer Cody Decker with Dan Bernstein and Layla Rahimi on the score. Why couldn't Major League Baseball have held this game in Durham, North Carolina to celebrate Bull Durham, an infinitely better baseball movie? They could still have had Kevin Costner guest stars the game's MC and join the broadcast booth. Crash Davis is a living, breathing symbol of professional baseball, and this is a film that both Siskel and Ebert, who didn't agree on much, gave a thumbs up. 
unlike Field of Dreams. Every part of this movie works. It was written and directed by a former minor league player, Ron Shelton, and his experience shows, because someone who knows an awful lot about baseball and loves it, created now, this I movie. I didn't know that Ron Sheldon had anything to do with minor league baseball. What I felt as I watched this movie was, you know, because so many baseball movies have really been so corny, yes. especially if you love the game of baseball, it, yes. this movie feels authentic, oh, it yeah. smells authentic, it plays authentically, and it is genuinely a funny funny movie in which all of these characters, not only the three you've mentioned, but also the other guys in the bullpen Manager. and so forth, and the people they meet on the road, right. are so well drawn. This is really one of the funniest comedies of the year. There's no question about it. I mean, to be able to write this kind of characters, I guess you have to live it. And you know, they say everybody has one story to tell and write what you know about. This um, guy Shelton sure did it. My favorite moments include one they mention. A meeting on the mound ostensibly started because Tim Robbins' character, pitcher Nuke Lelouch, once again and can't find the plate. When the pitching coach, played by Robert Wool, arrives, he finds himself having to help his infield and battery navigate the following. A player playing in front of his parents for the first time, needing to find a live rooster to lift the curse off another player's glove, and a group laundry, the appropriate present for a teammate's wedding. There's another scene I love where the Bulls are lamenting a losing streak and wishing they didn't have to play the following day. After conning his teammates into a fool's bet, Costner, carrying a six-pack of beer, busts open the fence behind the opponent's ball field with a baseball bat, turns on the sprinkler system, and announces, looks like we've got ourselves a natural disaster. After dissolving into laughter, the players celebrate, drinking beer and sliding headfirst through a muddy infield, like little kids. Or how about Major League? Its premise, easily recognizable in the 2021 Cubs, Pirates, Orioles, Diamondbacks, Pirates, and every Marlins team since their 2003 World Series championship, begins with an owner trying to sink attendance to the point she can bail on her lease with Cleveland Municipal Stadium and move the Indians to Florida. It's also one of the few big studio baseball movies to explore the diversity of baseball in players' ages, career stages, race, background, place of birth, and religion. It starts with two over-the-hill characters in Tom Berenger's Jake Taylor, who's looking for one last great year in the sun, and Corbin Burnson's Roger Dorn, a past-his-prime former star who believes, wrongly but unabashedly, that he's still in the prime of his career. Then there are the rookies, an ex-con, Charlie Sheen, coming straight from the California Penal Leagues. A black center fielder in Wesley Snipes, who dreams of being the next Willie Mays. Dennis Haysbird, who's claimed religious asylum in the United States so he can practice voodoo. These movies let us into the workings of the locker room, the dynamics of players' inner monologues and the struggles teammates and their coaches face to connect with each other and build some sort of winning culture. Even though these movies are older than he is, there's a far better chance Tim Anderson has seen either Bull Durham or Major League than Field of Dreams. However, even in this moment, Tim Anderson, the player who should be the face of baseball but isn't even really a fan of the sport, went over for Field of Dreams. This is what he said in his post-game press conference. Pretty cool moment, you know, uh, all around. Uh, you know, being able to walk it off is definitely, you know, one of my, one of my best moments of my career for sure. He was hardly the only one caught in the moment, as evidenced by Joe Buck's interview on the Scores Parkinson Spiegel show. My God, I mean, you can have a game that you play in a cornfield and then to have eight home runs and a lead change in the top and bottom of the ninth and a walk-off win, I mean, that... That, that was just like, you know, uh, God was smiling down on that game last night. <laughs> I've never had more 
text messages about any game, Super Bowl, World Series, doesn't matter. I've never had more text messages on my phone while I was doing the game, after I did the game, this morning when I woke up, about how cool that was last night. This really is a moment for baseball to yeah. realize that they've happened on something, and they're the talk of the, of the nation. From Mason in Ireland on KSPN in Los Angeles, to Carrington Harrison on Kansas City's KSCP, to Marty Lurie of KNBR in San Francisco, the national conversation was baseball. What did you think of the Field of Dreams game last night in Iowa? I thought that if you would have turned that in as a script that it would have been kicked back because there's no way it could have gone that well. I thought it was a banner night for Major League Baseball. That yeah. was flawless. You're telling me that game wasn't scripted? That the Yankees with two outs in the top of the ninth are going to hit two two-run homers into the cornfield to take a one-run lead? And then in the bottom of the inning... Tim Anderson's going to hit a two-run walk-off, and as soon as it hits the cornfield, the fireworks go off. Yes. I mean, come, I thought it was perfect. We talked about the field of dreams. I mean, some people are sold on it, some aren't. I will tell you this. 5.7 million people were sold on it last night. They were intrigued by it, which shows me there was interest in it. It was just something different than watching the Yankees and White Sox play in the South Side or in the Bronx. They were playing in a cornfield. And it was cool. This idea just came from this this love of a movie, a great classic movie that we all are enamored with. And it, it, to say something that we're all excited about exceeded expectations, it doesn't begin to describe what that night did. Visually, it, it was it, we were stimulated nonstop. Uh, in terms of the way the game ended, you couldn't script it. If someone gave me the outcome <laughs> of this game, I would have said that's really cheesy. There's no way the best players on the field are all going to be the heroes and the White Sox are going to win in the end. It really was a, a, a real-life movie, and Kevin Costner was in the stands to watch. That was the time to make a move. Promote Tim Anderson. Build on the abject fact that nationwide – People were talking about the Field of Dreams game, and specifically about the Chicago White Sox Black Star. Something special in itself when you take into account the fact that the percentage of black players in the major leagues has absolutely cratered. From a high of 19% in 1981 to barely 7% in 2021, or just slightly higher than 1953, when several teams had yet to field their first black major leaguer. Yet here we are, a little more than a month later, and still, more sports fans know the name Joe Buck than Tim Anderson. Baseball is entering its home stretch, yet it's the NFL that's the talk of sports nation. The White Sox have just two nationally televised games in September, and I'd guess zero primetime games in the playoffs divisional round. It looks like instead of seizing on this enormous gift they were handed, Major League Baseball will squander another golden opportunity to expand its fan base. Rather than blaze a path into the future, Major League Baseball keeps looking over its shoulder, lovingly eyeing the past, memorializing what was rather than imagining what could be. It's sad, it's imbecilic, and it's killing the game I've loved since I was seven years old. If Major League Baseball's leaders would just open their eyes, they'd see that with some marketing muscle, Tim Anderson could be as close to the next Ken Griffey Jr. as anyone currently playing the game. Or, 
They could rely on nostalgia and players who can't transcend the sport to sell a game that's lost a sizable chunk of its potential audience to the NBA and NFL. Look to the future, Major League Baseball. It would be pretty bright if only you could just stop looking over your shoulder, pining for the past. This episode of Wrecking the Toy Department was written, voiced, edited, and produced by me, Jake Williams. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, tell a friend, and leave a review and rating on iTunes. Thank you for listening.